Welcome back to Zillennials Podcast. Today on Zillennials, we're going to be having an extra saucy episode. Teacher tells all, so I'm going to tell you all of my beef with the education system, the things that I like that are going on, trends that are going on, and maybe like a slight dive into why I left teaching, but I probably won't get that far into it just because I think that we've got plenty to fill this episode regardless. I think this episode has been a long time in the making. I know when you were talking about leaving teaching, we discussed doing something like this when and if you actually left and then you did leave. And we're just kind of thinking about, oh, what's a good time to air something school rated September? And I think that also gave you some time to kind of collect yourself after leaving and marinate your thoughts so that you would be ready to share them. It definitely gave me some much needed time for some space from the profession, because I think at the end of my time teaching, I was very frustrated with a lot of different aspects of the school system, experiences I'd had. And so I think it definitely gave me a little bit of space and perspective so that I was not going to make something that was all negative. Because I think that while there are a lot of things that are tough with the American school system right now, there are also a lot of things that they're doing that I do appreciate. And so I think it was good to just have a little bit of space. Is there a specific topic you wanted to start with? I know it's such a big discussion, so kind of leaving that open to you, where you want to go. I think let's start off with some current education trends, just for the people out there, just because I feel like if we jump right in to the negatives, I feel like that's not always a good thing, and it's not always a good portrayal of our system here. So I'm always curious to know, because I know that we do have a couple of international listeners, so I'm curious to see especially what their opinions are. And I guess also the people who are from the U.S., just to kind of see, is this the experience that you had or is it something different? So one of the big trends right now is PBIS, which is Positive Behavior Interventions for Students. So essentially, as like an overview for this, it's like you reward students for what they're doing well. So I have to say, I like this in theory, but I think in execution, it usually doesn't work out well. Is this kind of like the whole carrot and stick thing? So this one would be trying to use the carrots more than the sticks. Sticks probably being the typical discipline measures of like detention, suspension, that kind of thing. Kind of. So this starts off with you have to set your expectations in your classroom and hold your students to a high standard. And then you reward them or you give them positive reinforcement once they achieve that goal. So for example, if you notice a kid who's helping another kid out and one of your tenants of your classroom is, we are collaborative here. We want to make sure that we're helping other people. Then you could be like, oh, good job, so-and-so. Here's a sticker. Or... It doesn't even need to be a physical object. You can have them have something that's a different sort of reward if you wanted to. Like, for example, they could be the person who writes all the words on the whiteboard, because I know kids really like to do that. So why don't you think it works? And what are the arguments you've seen for people promoting this? So the reason why I don't think it works is I think that in our school systems, we usually don't have the staffing, the training, etc. to back it up. So for PBIS, there are three different tiers. There's tier one, tier two, and tier three. So tier one is like 
what you do for all people who are involved in PBIS. It's like you provide your expectations, you encourage and you acknowledge your positive behavior. Tier two is providing additional supports for learning. So that's increased adult supervision, prompts and reminders, academic supports, adult and school contact. I will say for tier two, this is kind of where it starts to get a little bit more challenging just because I think that sometimes there's only so much a person can do. Like, let's say if you have 30% of your kids in your classroom are at tier two, are you going to devote 80% of your time to helping those 10 kids? And so I think this is where it gets a little bit more gray is sometimes it's hard to appropriately divide. And a lot of schools don't have the resources to help you to do that. So for example, like it would be really helpful to have an aide in the room so that all of your tier two students could get increased adult supervision. Because the thing is, it's not going to happen at different times. A lot of the times it happens all at once. So that would be kind of my reason why I think it doesn't necessarily work is because I think that the school usually needs to provide more supports and they're not always equipped to do that, which is not through the fault of the school. I think it's a fault of the system. That makes sense because I think this seems, I know nothing about this other than what you've just said, but it seems like something that could be really good if the resources were there. Yeah. And so unfortunately what you see is a lot of the times in schools that are really well off, They have more of the resources, whereas the schools that are not as well off don't. So you have this sort of equity issue, even though this is something that is supposed to help combat that. If your school doesn't have the resources to support it, you can't support it. And then your tier three is like your intervention planning for the students, behavioral support. So for example, you might have a student, let's call him Jimmy, who needs prompts every 10 minutes, who needs flexible seating, like maybe he needs to have the ability to stand and to sit because it helps him to focus. So it's that you're making those additional supports and those additional plans for those students. I don't know if this exactly fits here, but when you're talking about having, especially I feel like with the tier three, where there's students who need, who may have like specific plans and you need to implement all these different things. Because I did take a child in education class this or was it children in the law? So it was basically focused on children in schools with the, you know, the 504. And then there's the IEPs. And then there's section something, something that I can't remember. Clearly, once you take a final, the information just flies out of your brain. Um, was it the ADA stuff? Could be the ADA stuff. Probably. 504s. Is 504 the ADA? What's the other? This is embarrassing. I like literally took this like two months ago. It's okay. It's summer break. All the information is out the window right now. (laughs) It'll come back. Because the IEP, I think, is like the one that's like kind of shorter. And then there's another one that's like even more in depth. But when I was taking that class, I was thinking about how in certain classes, let's say there's multiple children on these specialized plans. There's one teacher. And let's say there's a school that wants to implement this method. How are they supposed to be managing like the kids on the special plans? the other kids in the classroom, and, like, doing all this other work because it just seems like a lot for one person. Like, I remember one of the times that was most challenging for this, and this is not, just to give you context, this is not me blaming the students. It's obviously not their fault. Like, we should be supporting them. 
I think it was a fault of the system that we weren't able to help them more. But I remember I had one class of maybe 24 kids, and then I think maybe seven of them needed instructions read aloud for everything. And we were taking like a test. And we didn't have one-to-one Chromebooks. Like we didn't have technology like that where I was teaching. And I remember it was so hard because I had to monitor the whole classroom and then go over to like these five to seven students individually and read to them all of their options and all of the questions because we didn't have someone else who could come in and help out with that. Like it was just me. And so I remember that was so tough to support that But it was also something that needed to be supported. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where you need those additional resources, but you don't always have them. Like if we had one-to-one Chromebooks, great. I could have recorded it on audio and then they could have listened and it would have been fine. I think that's something that if I was a teacher would especially frustrate me because I think most people go into teaching because they love learning. They want to help students learn and things like that. And to see an environment where certain kids need certain things to succeed and to not be able to fully offer them what they need in the way that's most efficient and effective because of bigger systemic issues like budgets and things like that. Yeah, like I think for me personally, a lot of the times it was really hard because if I saw them not doing well, it felt like a personal failure. It was like, what more could I have done to help them with what they needed. And so I think that that's always really hard as a teacher. And I think that that does contribute to some burnout because you want to make sure they have everything they need. It's just sometimes it's too much and you can't be everywhere all at once. Yeah. And I think that part of what's frustrating is I think the problem's so big, like problems like that, let's say having enough funding to get extra aids in that room is not necessarily something you as a teacher could fix in that moment. I do have to say, I think because of the money that was given to schools from COVID, I'm pretty sure they all have one-to-one Chromebooks now. So that's a huge plus. But PBIS, great in theory. I think it's like awesome to reward your kids for things that they're doing well. And it's something that I think, you know, you usually institute as a good teacher. But I think sometimes it's it can be difficult to execute if you don't have the supports in place to help you do that random thought about that just now I think it could also tie into say the workplace or if you're at home where I think it's so much easier to call someone out and to be called out when you're not doing something right so I think that like what's nice about it is like acknowledging oh you did that really well because I think a lot of times say at work like if there's something like oh like you could have done this better on this project but maybe not necessarily taking the time to say oh you did this part of it really well yeah and I have to say like The second school that I taught at, I feel like was much better in terms of PBIS, which is funny because I don't think they really talked about it as much as my first school did. Like my first school was like PBIS. This is the next big thing. This is what we're doing. Like it's going to be great. But my first school didn't have the supports to make it happen. My second school, it was just like, I feel like a little bit more part of the culture compared to my first school. And then there are a couple other ones. So I'll get into some of the other ones. Another one that we have is social emotional learning, which is like a big thing if you're going into education right now. So if I have any future teachers out there listening to this podcast, definitely mention it during your interviews. People will love that. And that's essentially learning healthy development and relationships, 
you're working on self-awareness, self-management, social skills, relationship skills, decision-making. So it's kind of like integrating all of that into your curriculum and teaching people to have good relationships with others and take accountability and make sure that you are working on developing as a whole person rather than just academically. As a regular citizen here, that sounds really good because I think a lot of times we get hyper-focused with schools on the academics, like, where is this child testing? Or, like, what's their AP score? How can they, like, reflect on our school and make our school look better? And if you think about how much time a child spends in the school, especially during the school year versus at home, like, they're getting a lot of these other lessons about just, like, being a human while they're at school. So I think it's good that schools take a more intentional approach to that. Yeah, I know for our school, or the school that I worked at last, they had, I think it was 25 minutes every day devoted to social emotional learning. But I do have to say the one thing that was really hard was they didn't give us a curriculum for it. And so it was like having a whole extra class to prep the first year that we did it because they wanted certain things on certain days. And so I think that that made it a little bit more challenging. I feel like the second year, it wasn't as crazy, but I feel like for a lot of people, what it turned into, because we were teaching high school, was it kind of just turned into a time for them to relax and socialize with each other, which I think is good, but also does not necessarily fully address why it was social emotional learning time. Like, I think it's good, but also it doesn't really... Well, I guess like you could say it it kind of teaches them social skills because they're socializing with one another. But you'd also have some kids who wouldn't want to socialize with other people who are like, this is my time to just listen to music and go to sleep. So I think that you had like, you know, a wide spectrum. (laughs) But I think it was a little bit more challenging because it was high school. You know, we had lessons that we would occasionally get from the social workers, the school counselors that would be like, let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about LGBTQ students. And we would talk about different things like that, which I think was really good. But I think that it was difficult because you didn't always have a set curriculum. And sometimes your high schoolers just needed a break in the day and weren't invested in what you were doing. I think just to that, I was like, high school, I remember I was getting up so early, going straight through the day. And our school did not have study hall. And so I could totally get that wanting to use that as a break and seeing it just as like a peer break, which who knows may go towards, I don't know, my self-management skills, managing the stress, managing the tiredness. Cause I don't think they ever really talked about that at school really, you know, I don't even know if we had anything from the social workers. All I remember that was like, we'd have the guidance counselors talking to us about how to apply to college, but like, Nothing in terms of, like, managing the stress of being in high school and applying to college or any of those other things that you do while you're in high school. So that would have been better. Yeah, I feel like a lot of what we did for ours, because, like I said, there was no set curriculum, um, was a lot of relationship building with with the kids just to, like, check in with them and be like, hey, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Like, is there anything I can help you out with? Like, what's going on? And just kind of checking in with them, making sure that they were doing okay. But I like it. I just think that a lot of 
the more lesson-y things are more applicable to people in like middle school or people in elementary school where it's like, how do you handle if you're feeling sad? How do you handle if you're feeling mad? You could talk to a high schooler about that, but also for a lot of them, I'm pretty sure they would just kind of laugh and be like, I learned this like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? I think that is actually, like you're saying, very good for what, K through 8? I think you could probably do a version of it in high school, but like you said, maybe a little more on relationship building and like their social interactions with each other than now count to 10 when you feel upset. I think also with high schoolers, not all of them, because some of them could just totally brush you off, but I think sometimes they pick up more than they're willing to let on. Cause like, I feel like there's this bravado of like, oh, talking about my feelings. I don't care. I'm too tough for this. Or like, I don't care. Like, I got this all under control. But really, inside their brain, they're like storing the little nuggets of information away. They just don't want to acknowledge it. Exactly. And that's why I think it's like, you know, it's important to go and talk to them about these things. And whether that's formal presentation, we're going to look at this, or whether it's just checking in with them being like, hey, do you need help with anything? How's everything going? I think there are a lot of different ways that you can go about it and there's no one correct approach, right? Like we did some team building stuff when I had kids in my social emotional learning class and that was a lot of fun. I think that it helps them to also feel like they were more part of a community rather than just we have to come here every day. Yeah, I think that's a lot of high school is like I'm here because I have to be. Yeah. And I did well in school and I'm still like I'm here because I have to be. Yeah, so those are two big trends. And then the last one that I have is like a quote unquote trend is I feel like we're seeing a lot more restorative justice. And I feel like this goes hand in hand with the social emotional learning. And this focuses more on building relationships and being respectful towards one another. So like if you do harm, acknowledging that and then trying to make it right and having more of a dialogue about decision-making, creating rules together. So this actually pulls from a lot of indigenous cultures because a lot of indigenous cultures already use restorative justice just in their culture. I think that it can work well, but you will still have some people who don't feel like they're invested in the community. And so they just don't care how it affects other people. Which I know sounds like super harsh, But I think that you're going to have some people who are like, I don't like them. I don't want to be around them. I don't care how it affects them. And I think that that's also part of just like growing up is sometimes, sometimes you have feelings towards someone and you don't know how to rationalize like what you're doing. So with this, theoretically, would it be, say, the two high schoolers in the mediation with each other? Because I think the thing that I think about with that is... You know how there's, like, a range of maturity, even though people are the same, like, numerical age? Yeah. I feel like some kids just are not ready for it, not into it. They're like, they did something to me. I don't really care about them. I don't want to talk to them, like you were saying. I feel like this is good. It's one of those ones where it's, like, good in theory. I just think it depends on the kids that you're dealing with. Yeah, so it would be, like, mediation with one another. That would be pretty much what's going on. Or mediation with whoever the conflict was with just to kind of help them to realize like this is where this person's coming from this is how my actions made you feel etc 
And I think, like you said, it's good in theory, but I think if you don't grow up having that, it makes it a lot harder to kind of accept that. Because if that's not something that you grow up having, it's like, that's not what I'm used to. I don't see how this affects the other person. And it's something that like, yeah, you could definitely grow into it. But I think with the different maturity levels, I think that that also definitely plays a factor. Towards your point, I think from the other side, it's like, let's say you were getting bullied and you're in this mediation. Like you said, if you're not used to this restorative justice mindset, you might feel like the bully's getting off and like not being sufficiently punished because they're not saying, I don't know, getting a detention because that's the framework that you were raised with. And that's what feels like the proper response. So I think it's definitely, it's going to, I think this is going to require like a societal shift. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it does require a little bit of that societal shift. And then I think it's also important to note that like, schools don't necessarily make this so there's no punishments whatsoever. It's more so like the punishment fits what you did. Where like for some kids, it'll be like, yeah, going to detention, that would probably make you think about doing it twice. For other kids, it might be like taking away after school club privileges. Yeah, that would probably make you think about doing it twice. I feel like that kind of takes the specific kid into consideration more where it's like, Maybe for one kid, it would be detention to stop them, but maybe another kid, like, really, really likes their club, and it would almost be worse to not go to that club than it would be to be in a, in a detention. Exactly. Which is why I'm like, I think that it's a good thing to think about and a good thing to try implementing. I think it's just, one, you need parents at home to support it, you need society to support it, which can be tough, because not everybody has the same frame of mind towards it. And then I think also, two. It's a little tough because let's say you're a dean of a school, right? Let's say your school has 900 kids. You have 450 kids that you need to know at that level to know what's going to work for them. Like, that that's kind of a lot. <laughs> so that's why I think it's like, it could work. But do we have something in place that's going to actually help it to work? I've noticed a trend across across all three of these is, these are great. They could work if they were done properly, which just leads me to think there's a giant funding issue in education here. Always, always. <laughs> but that's why, like, when people pay really high taxes, it's like, well, at least you're hopefully getting some more people in your schools. Because for a lot of these things, it's like you do need to have smaller groups of people that you're working with. Because a lot of these work well in, like, a very nuclear setting where it's like a very small group of people. But once you expand it to be a whole school, if you don't have enough people to support it, it's not going to work that well. I think to the point with the smaller groups is there feels like there's more of a social contract the smaller the group is. Because even if you don't like everyone, it's like, you know everyone. It's like High School Musical. We're all in this together. Oh, we should rewatch that sometime. That would be a fun one. I would definitely be down to rewatch High School Musical. Yeah, maybe when you come, it could be our movie night. Ooh, that sounds like a good thing, yeah. So a couple challenges that I'm seeing face the teaching industry in general, and I think are probably reasons why people are leaving, is, you know, you have a lot of mass violence. And I don't think this is just only in schools anymore. Like, I think you see it at public events around the U.S., but 
it makes for people to feel very unsafe. Like I think of the people that I know who have become teachers or work in school districts. And I don't think I can name a single one who has not had a gun related issue at their school or like a threat related issue at their school, which is kind of terrifying. It's like, wow, it's that common. But yeah, it really is. The ones that you hear about on the news, though, are only the ones, well, I shouldn't say only, but primarily the ones where people are injured, but it happens very frequently. And then also like lack of support. I think you have teachers not being supported by parents or by their community or, and this I think is even more so, is you have parents or families not supporting their students because a lot of a lot of what happens in the classroom is like, we can only do so much for your student, but they go back to the home and they're going to reflect what's happening there. Whether it's the morals they're being taught, whether it's things are going on at home that are really tough to deal with and then that makes them act out. There's a lot of different things, but I think that lack of support is really tough. And sometimes I think there's also a lack of accountability for students. And I'm not saying like, oh, we should give them all detention because now. I think that's silly. But I think that you do need to have some sort of accountability where it's like, hey, if I don't do my homework, what's going to happen? How am I going to get back on track and have something that will help them to move forward or help them to grow as a person? Yeah, I think all those are so hard because like you said, so much of the home can go into school. And I feel like the gut reaction when a kid's acting out is just like, oh, like, why can't they just behave themselves, blah, 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 blah. But then just from when you read more and do whatever research, or like you, if you're in the classroom, is you start to realize how much of it is the home. And like, I know there's been things where like, students are fine, they're doing well academically, all that, and then something happens, say like the parents getting divorced or something, and then all of a sudden grades slip, they act out. So it's like, how... And what can you do at that point? Also, like we were saying before, when you have so many students. Yeah. And actually, I want to bring up something here. So this is something that I just thought of. But one of the things that we looked at, I know at least when I was in Kentucky, was something that we call ACEs, their adverse childhood experiences. And so if you have a certain number of ACEs, because there are like questionnaires you can take, there are tests that you can take to see how many of those boxes you check. It has a really profound impact on your ability to do well in school. And so when I say like things at the home, it's not just necessarily like parenting. A lot of it can also be other adverse childhood experiences that can lead to trauma. Um, Other things that I think are really tough. Drugs are always an issue in school. I think especially now with like vape pens and stuff, it's very easy to make them easier to conceal, if you will. (laughs) So I think that that's tough. Student behavior. I know that people say that it's gotten worse since COVID. I don't know if maybe it's just because I had my first couple years of teaching pre-COVID, but I felt like it got better. (laughs) And that could just be like a change schools, got a more experienced teacher kind of thing. But I feel like it got better, but maybe that's just me. I think there is definitely a feeling of lack of community though where like people still have a hard time seeing how their actions impact other people and that's just across the board it's not just students that's everybody 
Yeah, I have also seen all those articles about how students just, I don't know if it's necessarily like they're acting out or if they've just like, aren't caring as much in terms of like, they're like kind of like a more blase attitude towards school, which I don't know. I feel like my introverted self would be kind of annoyed after like schooling from home to have to go back in every day, but that could just be me. Um, I think also there's all those articles, slightly different topic, about how there's been a lot of education loss during COVID and like all these articles about how are we going to recover that? Any thoughts? So there's, those are a lot of good points. I think So this is solely my opinion, but I think part of it is a lot of kids who had home lives that were adverse to their learning struggled a lot more during COVID because they had to stay at home all day. So I think that you have a lot of kids there who have some trauma, but I think that you also probably have some kids who saw how much they could get away with during COVID. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like, I feel as though expectations were lowered And so they feel like school doesn't matter because the expectations were lowered. They're like, oh, how much is this really going to impact me? If I turn in my work three months late, my teacher's still going to accept it. If I fail a class, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, oh, well, you know. So I think that that is really tough um, when you have a couple different things that have come out of COVID. But I think it's not just the kids. Like, for example, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I feel like drivers since COVID have gotten so much worse. I think I've seen articles about that, too, about how, like, road rage has gone up. I don't know if it's because people, like you said, there's less of a community sense of people who are just like, that person's in my way. They're driving too slow. I want them out of the way. Or... I think part of it was, too, is driving during COVID was actually kind of nice. There was no traffic, nobody getting in your way, and then all of a sudden all these people are back on the road again, and you're stuck in this, like, hour-long commute, and you're probably annoyed. And so I think people are just, yeah, it can be bad. I think you're right. I think it's a combination of those two things, but I do think that, like, in general, I think that people really took a hit with their sense of community during COVID. Yeah, I mean... I think it's interesting because I don't do any, like, community activities with, like, strangers. You know how, like, there's, like, I don't know, such a softball league or something. But I think a lot of people did, and a lot of people are missing that during that time. Yeah, or even, like, you couldn't interact with your neighbors even as much. Unless you could figure out a way to meet them in a socially distanced fashion, which I think probably worked for people who have houses but if you live in an apartment like what are you gonna do i think that's a lot of what covid did was if you were in a house it was a much more comfortable situation because you have a yard you can like spread out a little more and i think also with my earlier comment about like i probably would have done fine schooling from home i think it definitely goes to your point of that just comes from my what my home environment was like I have my own room. I have stable, like, housing and food and all that. So I do see how if you don't have those things, it would be a totally different. Or if you don't have regular internet, you can rely on. Yeah. Or let's say, like, you have two little siblings at home who are babies. And then you're expected to take care of the babies and go to school. Because mom is working from home or mom has to actually leave the house or dad or uncle or whoever is taking care of the kids. 
And you're left with the younger siblings. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think another reason why teachers are kind of leaving the profession is because there are different positions that you can go for upward mobility, but not all of them are ones that people want. Like, for example, like this is a personally a big reason for me was I was like, I'm young. I want to have a career. But do I see myself being a principal, a superintendent, a vice principal, or a dean? And I answered no to every single one of those. And then I was like, ooh, I should probably leave. Because <laughs> the raises that you get as a teacher are like cost of living. And that's it. You will never be making as much as the veteran teachers are now if you stay. Also, with all those positions you just named that would be associated, say, with a higher salary, I think... You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think all of them essentially require you to leave teaching. At least with the schools I went to, the principal never taught anything. Exactly. It's more like a management position. And then I feel like it's a very difficult position because you're not only managing like the kids, the teachers, but you also have to deal with the outside expectations of like the parents and the society. And so you're doing a lot that you know is going to make some groups unhappy because like I mean the way I thought about it I was like can I imagine myself going and expelling a child and I was like nope (laughs) I would not be able to do that and so um as a result I was like yeah I think being like a principal is probably not for me then (laughs) or a dean like no I don't think so yeah I think it's interesting too so I say like a lot of five-year-olds I wanted to be a teacher I would play school and all that and I think at that time, it's like, because I wanted to be a teacher, because I wanted to teach, interact with students, help them learn. So I think it'd be frustrating if you're a teacher and you want to move upwards and get like a higher salary, some sort of like, I don't know, whatever the upper position of a teacher that actually still teaches would be. Because I think a lot of teachers probably don't want to do management. Like they didn't, if they wanted to do management, they would have just gone to business school. Exactly. And I think that's, like, I can say that, oh, I didn't want to do this. And I'm sure there are going to be people listening to this podcast like, well, why did you go into teaching then? I picked this career field when I was, like, 17 years old, okay? Do you think my 17-year-old brain was thinking about career development? Because I can assure you, I certainly was not. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you are thinking about that. Which goes to our other episodes way back. Although maybe that's too far, Mark. Maybe they shouldn't listen to it. But when we talked about careers, no, no, when we talked about college and trade school and stuff, and how we're like, why are we letting 17-year-old children make these decisions? Literally, why? Like, I'm like, I look back and I'm like, my decisions would have been so different if I knew what I knew now. Which is not to say that I regret teaching because I think that it gave me a lot of skills that I needed. Like, I think my interpersonal skills have gotten significantly better since I started teaching. And I think also my presentation skills and my ability to speak in front of a crowd. I think those are really important skills that I would not have had otherwise. And so I think that teaching was really good in those respects. And if you're somebody who feels like you need to grow in those areas, let me tell you, teaching will do the trick. Especially, I feel like a middle school audience where you started is a is a tough crowd. It's like you have to make everything so entertaining for them. Like, it's it's almost like you're an actor all day. Which sounds exhausting. 
It is, but it's fun, but it's exhausting. Like it's it's a little bit of both. Um, the only other thing I could have really seen myself doing was maybe being a counselor, but I don't know. I think it was just one of those things where I could have done it, but if that was my only path, like I didn't know if that was what I wanted to do. Okay, what I think is interesting is I know you also majored in art and you are an art teacher. So you were able to combine those two things and a way to have art tangentially, like, or not, well, actually, it's kind of related, super related, but it wasn't like your art, so it wasn't art by choice. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'm going somewhere. I mean, I think that I decided to major in art education because I wanted to help people and I wanted to have a stable income, but I also wanted to be able to make art. And I think what I didn't realize was when I was working as an art teacher, I was making art a lot, but it was just student examples. Like it was never things that I wanted to make. Not that I inherently was like, oh, I have to make this example. Oh, like, honestly, that was the best part or one of the best parts, I think, of being an art teacher was like, oh, you get to make art all the time. It just happens to be art that you're not always passionate about. Yeah, I think it makes sense because it's like, you're doing something you're like, but it's not necessarily all your choice, you know, like, because you're trying to teach the students a specific technique or skill versus if you're doing something of your own, you can completely choose which ones you want to mix and match. And it's a little more freedom and creativity with that. And also, like, for example, if you wanted to make art that's a little bit more like political or social in nature, you have to be very careful about that when you're a teacher, because one of the things that as a teacher you're supposed to do is you're not really supposed to be imparting like social, political, religious views onto your kids. You just teach them how to be good human beings. That's an important lesson. It is. And I have a lot of respect out there for teachers. If you're somebody who's a teacher, I already know you should probably get paid more. But like, even for example, I was looking at teacher pay and there's one school in my area that pays very well. They pay about 62K for people fresh out of college. However, which is like in the teacher world, that's like, oh my gosh, you're making bank. But um... <laughs> And I live in like a fairly high cost of living area. It's not a cheap place to live. So it's not like rural Kentucky. <laughs> Where your neighbors are cows. Where my neighbors are cows. So that's definitely part of why it's that high. It's not just like, oh my gosh, they're paying this in the middle of nowhere. No, it's the cost of living here is high. But I think I did the math to see teachers who start today how long it would take them to get to earning six figures because a lot of teachers like earn six figures like a lot of veteran teachers in the vicinity that I'm in they'll earn 100k 120k 130k which is like a decent amount of money it would take you 15 years wouldn't a lot of that be wiped with inflation exactly okay that's <laughs> That's my point. I'm like, 15 years from now, 100K is going to be like, you're making pennies on the dollar. And so that was why I was like, man, it's just, it's tough. And I know that you can make money other ways. Like you can do sports, you can do after school activities. There's lots of different things that you can do. But I think it's difficult for teachers because that also requires a lot of additional time. And that's time that 
a lot of the times you're taking away from your classroom. I think also with, say, you take on coaching or this or that or, I don't know, however else teachers make extra money while in the school is, I think you should be able to make a decent living doing just your job. And then if you wanted to take on coaching or a club for extra money, you do it. But that's because you really want to help in that certain specific extracurricular Not because, oh, I'm interested in that and I need extra money to stay alive. Yeah. And to give you context, if you're making 60K a year, you're making after taxes, maybe like three grand a month. Rent where I live is for a one bedroom, 1,200 is on like the super cheap end, if you can even find it, to like $2,000. So... When you think about that, like you're supposed to put like 30% of your salary towards your rent, right? That's that's not really what's happening. It's a high cost of living area and you're not making that much comparatively. Wait, I was trying to do the math. So 3,000 times 0.3? Mm-hmm. So that would be about $1,000 a month you can put towards rent. So you're already going to be over that if you go on the very cheap end. That's funny, but not in, like, a funny way. Just in, like, a... This is just... It's so ridiculous. Exactly. So, there's that. But where I see education going is I think we're gonna keep losing educators for a long time. And, you know, it's not something that brings me joy to say, even as somebody who left the profession, because I think that kids deserve good educators and they deserve people who are going to stay. But I think also... There are a lot of different issues, like, for example, equity issues, like a lot of your teachers that you have are white. And that's because who can afford to go to school to be a teacher and can afford to not make that much money. If you have generational wealth, you can afford it. If you don't, it's going to be a lot harder. And so it's hard because you don't always see the demographics of your students reflected back in your teacher population. And so they don't always understand the experiences that their students are going through. So I think you're going to see educators leaving, I think you're going to see students being educated by people who don't fully understand their culture or things that they're going through. And I think that's going to be really tough. And I think honestly, in the future, you might even see a shift towards privatization of education, where it's not as much public education. I mean, they're already trying. I know. (laughs) They are already trying. But To give you an idea of like what's happening in the education world, these are just some examples of things that have happened over the past like five or so years. In Florida, there were book bans issued. Um, It can be a third degree felony to have a book that is banned from your classroom in your classroom. So a lot of teachers were having to get rid of books. And I think from what I heard about it, I heard that some of the books were books that featured like people of color or books that featured like people who were LGBTQ and things along those lines. And so I think that, you know, you're probably going to have some teachers leaving Florida as a result. You're also going to have some kids who feel like they're not included in their classroom just for some of those reasons. And then in another state, I want to say it was Florida, but I'm not positive. All this crazy stuff is happening in Florida. Or Texas. Or Texas. Or Arizona. Who knows? But um, 
People who are married to an arms forces, armed forces member can teach without a certificate, which means that you're getting a lot of people who are teaching without degrees or without qualifications. That seems questionable. <laughs> it's kind of like even Teach for America. They take college students who are fresh out of college and they just plop them in a classroom and they're like, good luck. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. Like, as the person who would be plopped in a classroom, not, like, just from the learning perspective. Yeah. Because I'd be like, I don't know what to do with these, like, 30-something five-year-olds. Right? Oh, I remember my first day of school when I was a teacher. I was so nervous. I was like, nobody's going to be here. It's just going to be me and the kids, and I have to tell them how to do things. <laughs> I was, like, full-on panic attack right before I start teaching. I was like, oh, my gosh. What if I don't know what I want them to do? <laughs> You know the meme that it's like when someone asks for an adult and you look around for an adult to your adult? Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think I also had those moments when I would walk around like by myself and like the first time someone asked me for directions, I was like, do I not look like a child anymore? Like, I feel that. Sometimes people stop me and ask for directions. And I'm always like, I don't know where you're going. Let me pull up Google Maps. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. And then other things that have been happening, I know in, I want to say it was New Mexico, but I could be wrong. I know the armed guard or armed forces was called in because the sub shortage was so bad. Like they just didn't have subs. So they called in the military, <laughs> which to me is like funny, but not haha funny. <laughs> well, I don't know. It is a little haha funny, but I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Wait, so, like, were there just people just chilling in the kindergarten classroom and they're, like, fatigues? That's my understanding of it, but I could be wrong. I mean, obviously I wasn't there. But, yeah, my understanding is they just, like, called them in and they were like, you have to sit with the kids and teach the youth. You're a sub now. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's probably not what they were expecting when they signed up. Right? I'm like, man, if I signed up for the military and they were like, you're now a sub, I'd be like, what? In what world? <laughs> I would think they would have to let them wear normal clothing, because that'd be weird to be a sub in, like, a full-on military uniform. But then also, like, you're on your military, like, your military assignment, right? So you kind of have to wear your military stuff. Could you imagine being, like, a seven-year-old walking in and there's just someone in, like, like a military officer in your classroom? I feel like the reactions to it would be so varied. Like, I feel like you'd have some little kids who are like, oh my gosh, I want to be a soldier when I grow up. And they'd be super hyped. And then you'd have some kids who are like, I don't trust the law. And like, do not come near me. <laughs> and then I think you'd have some kids who are just like mad intimidated who are like, and then I think you'd have others that are just, I don't care who you are. I'm going to act the way I'm going to act. And this is my school. <laughs> I think I'd be the one who's just kind of intimidated and like, what is going on here? <laughs> oh, same here. But I think it would be like, interesting to see all the different reactions. Oh, yeah, that would be kind of entertaining. But again, those people are trained for a completely different job. They are not trained to teach. Exactly. But yeah, I think, I think the uh, losing educators is going to be a thing for quite a while with the legislation that we have passed with the responsibilities of the job and how it's evolved over the years. Like, I think it's something like 50% leave within the first five years. So it's a field with very, very high burnout. 
And I feel like we're always being told like, oh, take care of yourself, do self-care. But it's kind of hard when A, you either don't have the time due to your job or B, what I found was really an issue for me was I like never could stop thinking about my job. It was like always on my mind. I was like, oh, I have grading I need to do. I have this I need to do. I have this I need to do. I need to contact this parent. And I don't know if it was because I felt overwhelmed by responsibilities. I'm not sure. Or maybe it's just because I'm one of those people who's like, I want to make sure that I'm doing something and I'm doing it right, where it felt like the job was never done and it never truly was something I could leave at my desk. Yeah. And that can wear someone down after a while. Just a little bit. But overall, I think that I like the direction where teaching is going in some respects, like the social emotional learning, the restorative justice, PBIS. I think they're great things. I just think that we need to have the support for them. I have a question that I guess we can close this out with. Say somebody's listening now, they're a new teacher, or say they'll graduate next spring, they're going to be a teacher. Oh no, the graduates wouldn't have started yet. Oh. So let's pretend they graduated in May, they're going to start their first year. What's something you would tell them as somebody who decided to leave? Like, I guess just what would you say to them? There are so many things. One, your lesson plans do not need to be scripted like you wrote them for college. That's something that I'm going to tell you as like a first year teacher. Don't script your lesson plans. I mean, you can, but like you don't have to because I know that that was a big wear on me my first year or two because I was scripting everything. It was a lot of work all the time. Two, it will get easier with time. And then three, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that somebody gave to me. And that was to make sure that you're acting as yourself in everything that you do. Because there are going to be times when you're going to have a kid who's causing you frustration in class, or you're going to get an email from a parent that's not very nice. And just remember who you are and make sure you're presenting yourself as who you are. Because at the end of the day, like, that's one of, in my opinion, the most important things is to be true to who you are in this profession. Because there's a reason why you went into this profession. And it's probably because you want to help people and probably because you want to educate the youth or because you love learning. And so just remember who you are and remember your why when you're going and having those interactions. Because how other people treat you does not define who you are. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like this was quite the wild ride and a little bit more serious than I thought it was going to be. But our next book club is going to be Outlawed and that will be by Anna North and dropping on September 4th. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on teaching in America in 2023 or 2020s in general. Love to hear your thoughts or if you have any questions, you can send us an email at podcast at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at podcast. Me, Leanne, knows nothing about teaching, so if you do reach out, it'll probably be Kaylee responding because that is the thing that makes the most sense. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts.